I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. This one ninja move will destroy your cravings. Seriously, if you get this strategy down pat, you can rest assured there will be no more relapses. And not only will there be no more relapses, but it won't even be that difficult. I know sometimes in the beginning, when you think about sobriety and recovery, and you think about dealing with all those cravings and how hard it's going to be, you stress yourself out, you freak yourself out, and it's pretty unnecessary, actually. The truth about cravings is this. If you don't feel them, they rarely last more than nine minutes. And I want to show you exactly how to make sure that they don't even last nine minutes, that they last less than nine minutes, and that once you turn the page on it, you move on from it, you feel better, you feel freer, and the craving is gone. You don't have to sit in that craving, miserable, anxious, uncomfortable state for those long periods of time anymore. If you've ever experienced a craving, put a little hand raised up emoji in the comments or in the chat. So I know that you at least know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about one of those cravings that just come on you and it feels like it lasts hours or even days. Now, you may be thinking, well, what kind of craving? Any kind of craving. It could be a craving for drugs. It can be a craving for alcohol. It can be a craving to engage in some other kind of addictive behavior or... I know a lot of you family members are watching this too. And guess what? You have cravings too. Your cravings are to sneak, check, ask, snoop, spy, all of those things that you think, if I could just find out for sure what's really happening and check on this, it will alleviate my anxiety. But it never does. It's just kind of like the same craving for the drug, the alcohol, the addictive behavior. It feels like if I could just scratch this itch, it'll feel better but it never feels better. It always feels worse. And once you really understand that, these cravings have less hold over you. And at that point, it just becomes about, well, how do I move past this uncomfortableness, this anxiety type feeling and move on about my day and not get stuck in it? Don't worry. I'm going to give you all the secret ninja moves. A lot of times when people talk to me about getting sober, they're like, well, I've gotten sober in the past and No matter how long it is, I never feel better. I'm always craving. I'm always miserable. And I end up feeling worse than I felt when I was in my active addiction, which usually isn't quite the truth. That's really kind of an addictive thought because most of the time when I dig underneath that surface and find out what's really going on, that's not quite the truth. It's kind of a craving thought if you think about it because it's this addictive thought that's basically trying to make you give up, trying to talk you into relapsing back into that old addictive behavior. And those are the kinds of thoughts that fuel the cravings. It's that kind of thinking that makes it go on and on for like hours and days at a time. But you're in control of that gas pedal. You can choose whether you want to throw gasoline on that craving or whether you just want to throw some water on it and smother that craving and so that it's out of there. The big key here is not to go into your head and gasoline it. Now, what do I mean by gasoline? What I mean by gasolining is you don't want to fantasize about it, remember when, start scheming, planning, 
watching old like movies or videos that remind you of it. You don't want to be like putting yourself in front of triggers, people, places, things, all that kind of stuff. When you do that, you're making it worse. So when that happens, you have this craving, then you start doing things to fuel it. Then you start having these other little thoughts, these addictive thoughts that come into play and really make this thing into a roaring fire. And those thoughts are always some kind of version of, you might as well give up. They're these, you might as well give into it thoughts. So let me give you an example of a few of them. One of the thoughts that will get you to cave into this craving is you feel that uncomfortableness and then you think to yourself, you will always feel that way. It will always be this hard. Like it's never going to get easier. You're always going to feel miserable. That's called like the forever monster mouth. And when you have that kind of thought going on, that makes that craving last a long time. And it also makes you feel helpless and hopeless to get past that. But it's not a truth. No feeling, no matter what the feeling is, ever lasts forever. Not the good ones and not the bad ones. Thankfully, not the bad ones. And a craving won't last forever. In fact, it'll last a very short time if you will just let it pass. So that forever thought, it's a big bunch of BS. Don't even be believing it. Another thought that you might have is you might have this thought of, well, I always screw it up in the end. I always fail. I never make it past this certain benchmark of sober time or whatever it is. And so that thought makes you want to give up because it's like, I know I'm going to fail anyway. Might as well just give into it. Makes you want to throw your hands in the air and then just give into this craving, which is again, another false thought. Some of you might've seen my video that where I talk about the monster mouths. This is one of those monster mouths. It will help you understand what these thoughts are and where they're coming from and how not to buy them because they're just lying little monster mouths. That's all they are. Another thought that you might have that will cause you to give in and cave into this craving is a thought about, well, everyone expects me to fail anyway. Another version of that is, I mean, how many people really ever beat addiction? It's five or 10% or something. These are thoughts around, you're going to fail. Everyone expects you to fail. Might as well just go ahead and give into it and have this good experience, which in your mind is telling you it's going to be a good experience. But let's be real. It's not a good experience anymore. If you've gotten sober, then you've gotten to the point where it's not a good experience anymore. So this trying to convince yourself that it will be fun, that it'll be pleasurable, that it'll help, that it'll take stress off. It's a big fat lie too. That's another one of those monster mouths. How many times have you fallen for that monster mouth? Probably a lot of times. We all do it. We fall back into that belief that it'll be different this time. I'll just do a little bit. It's another one of them monster mouths you got to quit listening to. It's any version of a little bit won't hurt just this one time. I won't let it get back out of control again. So this is called like a containment monster mouth. This is usually it's kind of you have that craving. You start fantasizing, planning, scheming. Then you start having those other thoughts about you might as well give up anyway. And then you get this kicker thought in there, which is that one about, well, you won't let it get that far out of control. Just be this, just this one time, just to take the pressure off, just to release a little steam. You know, your family's out of town. They won't even know about it. Won't even hurt anyone. You'll get right back on the wagon. When you get this kind of combination of thoughts lined up, you are in very dangerous territory. So you got to head this thing off at the pass. Can you turn it around at that point? Of course, you can turn around at any point. You can turn around mid relapse. You can turn it around after you're done started down the road of using or engaging in that addictive behavior. There is no point of no return. If you're alive, you are in the game. So that point of no return, that's another one of those monster mouth thoughts. Do not believe it. But I will tell you this, 
the earlier you intervene in the cycle, the better, because it's going to be that craving tends to build like a fire. It gets stronger and stronger the longer you let it go. And it just keeps going like a wild fire out in California or something. We don't need that, right? Let's get it contained quickly. So instead of heading down that path of the black hole of negative thinking and bad decisions, you want to head it off at the pass. And the way that you do that is mostly through distraction. And I have some other videos about ways you can distract. But today I want to focus in on probably the most effective craving, coping, distraction kit skill that you can use. And that one is, I want you to get out of your own head and out of those negative thoughts and out of that self-pity and out of that hopelessness and that might as well give up baloney, baloney, that's not even true. And I want you to start thinking, how can I get out of myself and do something that contributes to something or some person outside of myself? It's called contribution, to put it simple. How can I contribute in some positive way, some energy of something good? And I'm going to explain to you why this is important. But first, let me tell you how to do it. In recovery, we talk a lot about how you guys have heard me say, if you've watched my videos, you've heard me say connection is the cure to recovery. And that is actually a huge piece of the formula. There's actually two more C's. Connection is one of them. Second one of them is contribution. And that third one, I'm going to save. I'm going to give you that one in a later video. It's coming out soon. So be sure and look out for that. But let's focus on contribution today. Because sometimes when you feel in this craving zone, if it's early recovery, it's hard to feel connected to other people. But if you can ask yourself a simple question of what's something nice I can do today instead of getting in my own head and thinking about my own problems and how hard this is and how difficult it is, is there anything I can do to be of assistance or help to some other situation outside of me? So maybe that's call up a friend and ask them how they're doing. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who's not doing great and you want to call up and listen to their problems. It's our natural instinct. A lot of people say, well, call someone up and tell them you're craving, which you can do that. It's not a bad move. It's going to make you think about it more. So a better move, call somebody up, listen to their problems. It's always, trust me, from somebody who makes a living to listen to other people's problems, it's way easier to listen to anybody else's problems, no matter how big they are, than your own problems. So you, even if it's just lending a helpful listening ear, do that. If it's get up and clean the dishes up because it's going to make your wife happy when she comes home. If it's make your bed up. If it's go over and help your grandma get a Christmas tree down from the attic that she's been asking you to do for two weeks now. Anything that you can do that gets you outside of you, number one, it's going to distract you. But most importantly, it's going to make you feel good. It's actually going to cause your brain to release all the really good chemicals that actually make you feel about a million times better than that addictive behavior or substance will ever make you feel. And even better than that, the good feeling, the high, the positivity is better than the addiction feeling, but it gets to keep feeling good about it all day, even tomorrow. Whereas if you have that addiction, good feeling it probably doesn't feel good anymore. Let's be real about it. But even if it does, it's not going to last very long. And then you have a long time of feeling crappy to pay the price for that teeny little, not even good feeling anymore. You've got to be honest with yourself. If you can get into this contribution mindset, into this outside of myself, do something nice and help someone else. Hey, walk your dog. Be nice to your dog. Throw the ball in the yard to your dog. Do anything that you feel like is helpful 
somewhere. Anything that's going to help someone else or anything that's going to make you feel proud of yourself. If there's a big goal that you've been thinking about a lot and you've been wanting to accomplish, take one tiny little step towards it. Because like I said, it's going to distract you. It's going to make you feel good about yourself. And it, and in the end, you're going to have a good day. So you can make sure you have a good day. You can go this direction. Or you can make sure you have a bad day. You can go in that pit. You can take all those negative thoughts and you can try to fight it and wage war with it and do battle and wear yourself out. Don't do that. It's not necessary. If you'll focus on the contribution, that thought process and that feeling, it's incompatible, incompatible with the craving feeling. It's kind of like if you've ever tried to pat your head and rub your stomach, it's really hard to do. You might could pull it off if you tried really hard to concentrate on it, but it doesn't come natural. That's what I'm saying about craving and contribution. It's two separate things. Craving is a feeling of negativity, hopelessness, despair, frustration, self-pity, resentment. All of that is what goes in the craving category that's going to take you further and further down that craving road. Contribution makes you feel positive good about yourself, excited about your future, hopeful. You got the dopamines, the oxytocins, the serotonins. You got all the good brain chemicals going over here. It's a choice that you can make. The sooner you make that choice in the craving process, the better. The sooner you engage that process, the easier it is to head it off. Because like a fire, the bigger it builds, the longer it builds, the harder it is to put out. But there is no point. There is no like point of no return. Don't forget that part. I don't care if you've done, went to the grocery store, bought you a bottle of alcohol and drank the first glass. You could still turn it around. Now that addiction will try to tell you otherwise. That addiction will try to tell you, you done screwed it up. You done relapse. Might as well not waste the relapse. You've already done it. No, you haven't. You can turn that ship around anytime you want. All those addictive thoughts are nothing but lies. And the faster you learn to recognize those lies for what they are, which is a big old bunch of bull, the easier it will be to just tune them out and not listen to them. Have you ever had someone in your life that just constantly lied to you and then eventually you just stop listening to anything they had to say because you you know it's not true? That's what I want you to realize about these addictive thoughts. It's a bunch of bull. It's all designed to get you to make a bad decision. And then guess what? As soon as you make that bad decision, those addictive little thoughts, those little monster mouths will come in and beat you up and tell you what a loser piece of crap you are and can't believe you did that again. And you don't even deserve good things in your life because you just hurt people. That's going to talk you into doing it and then beat you down and make you feel bad after you've done it. That's a bad relationship. That is a bad plan. You could walk away from that. Come on over to this other side because a big part of what keeps you stuck in that addiction is that shame, guilt, negativity, self-pity, resentment, all of those are the elements that go into fueling an addiction. If you don't know what to do, I want you to just think about what is the opposite of those components? What is the opposite of resentment? What is the opposite of self-pity? What is the opposite of shame and guilt? If you can't figure out what to do, think about what addiction is and just do the opposite of that. And you won't go wrong. You will be in the right direction. It's as simple as that. And I didn't say it's easy, but it is simple. The more times you do this, the easier it gets because it will become your new automatic. Just like you created an automatic addictive behavior, just as easy as you can wire that not great behavior in, you can wire in a good behavior. It works the same way. You build neuropathway the very same way. And this other way is also very rewarding because you do get the release of good chemicals. I mean, think about it. If someone is lost 
and stops to ask you directions on how to get there and you just stop and you tell them how the directions to get where they want to go because maybe you live locally and you feel kind of good about yourself and all you did was tell somebody how to get where they were going. It's that simple. You can get that positive feeling. You can access it anytime you want it. And if you really want to build some recovery muscles, like you want to be like the recovery weightlifting champion of the universe, then you just build this contribution thing into your everyday life. You put it on autopilot. You you don't even wait for the craving. You get up and you have a plan on what you're going to do. I used to have a friend in recovery and this person got sober in like the 80s or something. And he used to go to meetings and this is like way back old school when they used to smoke in the 12-step meetings in the 80s. It was I can't even imagine how smoky the room was in 12-step meetings because pretty much anyone who gets clean sober from addiction usually uses nicotine. And back then everyone smoked cigarettes. And so in the rooms, I bet it was a nasty mess. Anyway, so my friend said that one of the things that his sponsor made him do was after every meeting would make him go around, pick up all the ashtrays and clean out ashtrays. Of course, he thought that was gross, nasty. And he's like, why do I got to do that? And his sponsor says, because there's recovery at the bottom of every one of them ashtrays. And I doubt my friend knew what he meant at that point when the sponsor was saying it to him, but he was at least to the point where he was like at that willingness, I'll just do whatever my sponsor tells me to do because don't we do it. Someone's going to do it. But there's some truth there, right? I've heard a lot of people talk about being very early, especially like people going to NA and stuff, very early in that process and they start going to meetings and somebody asks them to show up and be the person that shows up before the meeting makes the coffee. And they're and they feel like this like combination of like surprise and excitement and proud of themselves because they're making the coffee. Somebody trusts me to come in here early before people get here and make the coffee. It's almost like you get this sense of duty and responsibility. The going to make the coffee, it's not just something helpful you're doing for the meeting. It's something helpful you're doing yourself. You're learning to be responsible. You're learning to think ahead and plan and be considerate of other people. And then sometimes I hear people talk about like when the people in a give you the key to the building, like the church, the community center, whatever it is, and they tell you to come in and open it up and set the chairs up. Then you think, oh my God, people gave me a key to come in this building and set this stuff up. Like what in the world's going on? And that is all part of the recovery process. It's called contribution. There is a million, thousand, zillion ways to contribute. Small, big, any of it counts. And that is the building blocks of how you dig out of this dark, nasty hole of addiction. Just think about what addiction is and you do the opposite. Once you start doing that contribution thing, it actually makes the connection piece come along because you feel better about yourself you feel more present and open and engaged with other people. And that allows the connection piece to come in. So these building blocks, these ones that start with the C, they sort of build on top of each other. And the more you do one, the bigger the other two get. And it becomes a momentum. This video is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 therapists worldwide, which is one of the things that makes them so easily accessible. That is honestly my favorite thing about BetterHelp is that you can get access to the help when you actually need it. You guys know that I talk about getting help when you're in that right moment. Timing is everything. And the last thing that you want to do is start calling around to all these different therapist practices and waiting for weeks to get a call back if you even get 
get one. Now BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It's real professional therapy done securely online. It's so easy to set up an account. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com backslash put the shovel down. Don't forget to use that link to get an extra 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P backslash put the shovel down. I know Soberlink would be perfect for my alcoholic spouse. He tries to quit and repeatedly, repeatedly relapses, won't agree to treatment. Should I buy Soberlink for him without his proof? Absolutely not. You should talk to your spouse about the Soberlink because not only would you be buying a device and if he doesn't do it, then you wasted your money and it's not, it's not like super cheap. But with Soberlink, it's kind of like a cell phone. You have to get the device and you also like have to sign up for the monitoring service like you do like a cell service. So you want to get the person on board before you do this. And I have some videos where I talk about Soberlink and talk about how to have this conversation, but you want to use Soberlink as a preventative. For those of you who don't know, Soberlink is an alcohol monitoring device. You definitely want to get permission. You don't want to do something like that. That's just going to start a fight and an argument, but it, but you can talk to them about it, especially if what you're saying is your spouse wants to quit, but keeps having relapses, then your spouse may very well be open to that. Especially if you present it as an alternative to going to treatment, you might even be more open to that. So try that. And then he says, I just need a library of your videos and you should be good. Well, you are in luck. There is a monster library of them right here on YouTube. There's so many of them. I can't even remember them all. And I do have them in playlist, which sometimes is helpful for you. DJ Matt Mystic says, I was sober for 95 days and relapsed for five days. Now sober again for two days. And never looking back. I like it. That is wonderful. You can't erase your 95 days. You took a break and you figured out in those five days, it's still no good in there. I like to say, yeah, still sucks. Still doesn't work. And you, it just made you remember why you wanted to stop. And you get back, right back on track. And now you're on day 97, right? You had 95, you lost five, but now you've got two more. So in my mind, you're on day 97. Very nice. Let's see here. Married a long time says, I quit smoking 20 plus years ago. What got me realizing was I was a slave to the cigarettes, the five D's, distract, delay, deny, deep breath, drink water. Oh, I like it. The five D's, that's easy to remember. Distract, delay. Delay is also a really good method. I'm glad you brought that one in here. Delay is like when you say, you're not saying I won't ever do it, but you're saying I'm not going to do it right now. I'll think about that again after dinner. I'll think about that again tomorrow because it can be easy to put it off. And by the time you put it off and then you distract while you put it off, a lot of times the craving goes away and then it becomes a non-issue. So I really like the, the delay strategy. Hey, I really appreciate your YouTubes. My boyfriend is in rehab at day 20. He's doing great and has another 10 days there. I know when he comes out, life is going to be difficult. Well, here's what I want to say, Emma. You find what you're looking for. So while I want you to be realistic about what life will be like when he comes out, I don't want you to go into it with your head in a negative place because you can sort of like inadvertently, subconsciously create a negative situation. So I want you to be positive for their sake and for your sake. So yeah, 20 days in rehab, they're doing great. They've got 10 more. The fact that they've been willing to stay a whole 30 days tells me that they're really trying. So I want you and them to come at it with a positive attitude. Everybody wants to talk all this crap about how no one beats addiction and the recovery rates are so low. I said, well, dude, like I see people beat this thing every single day. And what's amazing about it is once they really get their head wrapped around it and they put their mind to it and they're really ready, 
they're just done. They move back, they move on, they're, they don't look back, they're happy, and they become better, happier, more productive, more spiritually connected human beings. People get better from this thing every single day. If they didn't, I wouldn't be wasting my time and my breath doing all this, but I promise you they do. Lots and lots and lots of people get better. Maggie Jane says, so don't reminisce. That is correct. No war story and no remembering when, no fantasizing, no calling up your old using buddies and telling funny stories. That's a bad plan. Don't do it. I like this right here. We the Rabble says, short-term relapse equals research mission. Yep, still sucks. Back to sobriety. That's right. It's just a confirmation. Nope, still sucks in here. Still ends the same every time. I don't think I like this. That's right. Do cultural differences affect counseling? I'm sure that cultural differences can affect counseling, no doubt. I would say probably as much as cultural differences, personality differences, because counseling is about a relationship. And what is most important is to just have a person that you relate to, that you like, that you connect to on a personal level. If you don't connect to your counsel on a personal level, it's just really hard to let your guard down far enough to get like honest and depth and trust enough going to get really good stuff out of counseling. So personality and relationship definitely matter when it comes to counseling. Not so much when it comes to like psychiatry and doctors. They don't have to be your best friend, but your counselor, not your best friend, but you do need to trust them as a person. So relationship matters. Found your videos after my husband let me know he had been using drugs for over a year without my knowledge. They have helped me get through this and he has been working on sobriety for three months. I love it. Thank you so much for the positive feedback on the videos, but also just for sharing the positive progress that you're making. Because like I said, people need to hear that. If you want to talk a bunch of negative crap about people don't get better from addiction, that's ridiculous. People get better all the time and we need to hear stories like this. Thank you for sharing that. As a licensed mental health professional and a residency in recovery and recovering alcohol addict, I truly appreciate your videos. I benefit personally and I also recommend your videos to my clients, family, and friends. Hey, thank you. I always appreciate anyone's positive feedback advice. It keeps me going. You need a little positive feedback to keep going sometimes, but I really appreciate it from someone who's in recovery and even more from someone who's in the field. It really means a lot. And I appreciate that, the positive feedback and the sharing the videos. And I appreciate you for being another soldier out there fighting this issue. We need as many soldiers as we can get. Thank you. Serene says the principle of contribution is deeply embedded in the 12 step programs. I've come from the clean ashtrays generation. You come from the clean ashtrays generation, like from the eighties and maybe even the nineties or they had the smoking in the rooms. Yes, it is. It is deeply embedded in the 12 step tradition. It is the 12th step, right? Continued to carry the message. That's one form of contribution, but there are many other forms of contribution that aren't sort of spelled out really directly, but just like you're saying, it's sort of woven in sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly into those steps. You're exactly right. And for those of you who don't like the steps, that's cool. You don't have to do the steps, but you do have to do the contribution. Find your own way of doing it. If you do it, it works. If you do it through the steps, that's cool too. Reach out to someone in our church who's a counselor. He'd prefer if my husband reached out to him for counseling through our church. My husband has definitely contemplated it, but then doesn't. Is it bad if I have a counselor send my husband a text and reach out to him first? He's had nine weeks of sobriety with no outside help and relapsed two days ago over his 50th birthday. Now sober again for about a week and a half. So my answer to that is it's okay to do that if your husband gives you permission to do that. Say, hey, is it okay if I give them your contact information? 
if your husband says yes, then do it. If your husband says no, then don't do it. Because your big priority is to do the best you can. Sometimes you can't always, but whenever possible, you want to remain in alliance and let them know you're on their side. You are not going behind their back. You're there to be helpful, not to force anything. That creates the trust. And, and your husband may say, yeah, that's totally fine. And that might just be just that little nudge he needs to take the big step. So totally do it, but ask first. Let's see. MF says, is there a way to do a phone consultation with you? We do offer phone consultations virtual, like via Zoom. And we do offer email consultations as well. You can go on our website and look at those. There are options to do that with me, but there are also options to do that with our family specialists like Campbell and Kim and Scott, who are also awesome. I will tell you this, if you're a family member, a lot of times family members, because you guys see me mostly on the videos. And so people are like, oh, I want to talk to you because I feel like I know you. The other counselors, my family counselors are fantastic. And a lot of times people will call me for the consult as the family member and they're like, I just need support. I need help getting through this. And I'm like, man, you should have talked to Ken or Campbell or Scott because they got your back. <laughs> when you call me up, I'm going to talk to you about your addicted loved one. I'm going to say, this is what they need. If you need some support as the family member and you want somebody to be on your side and help you hold boundaries and see your point of view, you want to talk to one of them. I mean, I got your back as much as possible, but my brain immediately goes to what the addicted person needs because that's the person that I spend most of my time dealing with and my brain just immediately analyzes that. Whereas Kim and Campbell and Scott, they think about what you need. They got your side. They're your lawyer. So keep that in mind for anyone who wants to book a consultation. But yes, you can do that. Let's see. My husband don't stop to use substitutes every time he stopped using his drugs of choice. Then he uses more and more. In a few months, relapses over and over again. He's on Suboxone. Any recommendations? Is what you're saying is your husband, when your husband stops one thing, they end up using something else. I think that's what you're saying, but I'm not sure. That could be part of the bargaining process that I talk so much. If you've seen any of my videos on the stages of change, you might've heard me talk about the bargaining, the trial and error, the cutting it back, the use this and not that. It's all part of the bargaining process. And does it work? No, but is it? But it is necessary to sort of move through all that trial and error to get out to the other side. So if you haven't seen those videos on stages of change and bargaining and that kind of thing, definitely check those out and it'll help you can't skip that stage, but you can speed it along. And those videos will help you figure out how to do that. The finisher says, are there certain protocols you recommend when dealing with someone who has CPTSD as well as addiction? CPTSD, it's hard to say, it's a mouthful, stands for Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like most people know what PTSD is, where something like really terrible happens and it like jacks up your alarm system, your anxiety system. Like you went to war, like you were assaulted like you were in a natural disaster earthquake or something that's called PTSD but when you live in more of like a longer term ongoing really bad unsafe environment like childhood abuse that went on forever like having addicted parents something like that then they call that it's called a complex trauma so it's not one single event it's like a big long time period in your life where things were really jacked up it can mess you up so my advice on what to do with that is with almost any other mental health situation outside of like active psychosis or active like suicidality, outside of those things, you want to deal with the addiction first, followed closely with the mental health or sometimes simultaneously. What won't work is you know, having an addiction and like having a trauma or something like that and then trying to work on the trauma, thinking that if you resolve the trauma, the addiction will go away. 
by the time you've engaged in addictive behavior long enough that it becomes its own addiction, it is its own problem and it won't just go away even if you remove the like precipitating factor. So you got to do it at the same time. If you got to do one first, you do the addiction first and then that with the exception of major like instability, mental health, like somebody's not thinking straight at all. Like you can't even talk to them rationally, like active psychosis or something like that. In that case, you do that first and then the addiction. I hope that's helpful. I do have videos where I talk more in depth about that. If you want to check them out. My addicted loved one is so resistant to change and in denial. What is the best balance between focusing on my life and avoiding him and continue to learn about addiction in hopes of helping someday. It's hard. I don't want to give up, but I'm also exhausted of it, even though I love listening to you. You're so right. It is this balance of taking care of yourself and then letting them come out of denial. The letting them come out of denial is a sort of a formula, a combination of things which involves empathy positive reinforcement and natural consequences. So it means you let the bad things happen. You don't make the punishments. You just let the natural crap happen, the messes that they're making. You let them make those messes. And when they make those messes, you are empathetic about it. You create trust, relationship, you positively reinforce and moves in the right direction. And that is the combination that gets someone out of denial. I'm not sure if you are in our invisible intervention program, but if you're not, that's the kind of thing that we teach in there. It's like it takes down that, that formula I just told you in that quick version and breaks it down into step-by-step step exactly what to do and when to say what things, how to say it, all that kind of stuff to, to get someone out of that denial state. And it also, in the Invisible Intervention, focuses on the taking care of you. But you're right, it's a balancing act. The more you take care of you, the more resilience and energy and fuel you're going to have in your tank to be able to do the things that they need to help them. If you don't take care of you, you're not going to be able to help them. If you don't take care of you, you're probably going to end up making them worse, even though you're trying really hard not to. You got to have the fuel to be able to do that. Thanks for listening to our audio. But did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.